0: Hello and welcome to Laid Back Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. I am Gabe. I am a wine professional working in wine and spirits education, and I'm Michael, an enthusiast of all things craft with a couple of years of experience in the industry. And today, how are we doing, Gabe?
1: We are doing good. We are talking terms. We are talking terms.
0: Did anything fun happen for you this week? I never check in with you on the podcast. We always do this before we start recording.
1: I uh, I sat in my house. I, I worked, played a lot of Vampire Survivors this week.
0: <laughs> I don't know what that is actually.
1: It's basically AFK the game, but it's really good. Huh? Yeah, you just you just move a character around, and they get powerful. Just
0: just for moving, just for being.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you have to level up. You you have attacks, but they fire off automatically. It, I can show it to you. It's a good
0: time. Well, and, and if you are not a gamer, then a lot of those terms probably went over your head as they also did with me. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> and that's a, actually Nichols what a we're... a fake gamer.
0: Yeah, well, no, I, I I, have a very specific set of skills that are designed... And they are all in a game called Mario Kart. <laughs> actually, yes, I am the <laughs> deity of Mario Kart, just in case anybody needed to know. I am not a king... <laughs> I am not a god, I am the overseer of all things Mm. in Mario Kart. I
1: Uh, see, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: But if you don't know terms, that's actually what we are getting into today. You see, we were... Yeah, thank you. Um, Beautiful transition. We are actually thinking about doing a lot of our original episodes that were like wine basics again, but we kind of figured that some of those things, although we will be revisiting... There was a shortfall, and the shortfall was not just with us. It was actually kind of in the industry as a whole, Mm -hmm. not a deficit of knowledge. There are tons of knowledgeable people. Yeah, we're, we're really smart. We're so smart. We're so smart. But there's a certain blindness that happens once you're in the industry for long enough. So when you're trying to explain something at a tasting or a winery event, you end up just saying these terms, and people are learning. They are most certainly learning a lot about wine and about tasting, but not everything is as clear as it should be. Like, when I'm saying, oh, well, when you're tasting, it's all about being able to separate out all these different factors, including tannins, and you're really able to see what the terroir is like, and this, that, and the other thing, and the way that they did the trellising and this specific terroir, these terms end up being thrown out so quickly that you, the listener, might be able to kind of glean a little bit of what it means, but the full definition, what it actually is, is actually fairly poorly explained. And that's going to impact your ability to even extract value from your experiences in the wine world going forward.
1: Yeah, we, we just wanted to get in with some basic wine terms. We're not really going to get into anything like super technical but we wanted to give you guys what we thought the most common, poorly defined basic terms are. Things like Michael said that people would just kind of throw out expecting you to already know without necessarily giving you the actual breakdown of what they are. But let's get into it.
0: Yeah, let's get into it. So, one of the first things that you're going to end up being told about when you go to your local winery or to a wine making event. They're going to start talking about grape growing and fermentation. So let's get into that because there are a couple of things within all of that that might kind of go over your head or just be a little misunderstood. So why don't you get into this, Gabe?
1: All right. So I'm going to start off with like the very bare bones essential, what makes wine wine, which is fermentation. If this is a little too low level, I apologize. But in case you don't know, Fermentation is the act of converting sugar into alcohol via yeast, and the byproducts that we are going to have of that are, of course, obviously the alcohol, CO2, and heat. Uh, Something about fermentation, if you hear someone talk about temperature-controlled vessels that they are fermenting in, that is an attempt to make sure your fermentations are not running too hot or too cold. Because if you get into too cold territory, the yeast can go dormant, and then you can get what's called a stuck fermentation, and that's not good.
0: It's important to say fermentation is a process by which grape juice is transformed into wine. Mm -hmm. We have all of those grapes after they're harvested, and they are crushed, and then the process is actually fairly natural. They might use natural yeasts, and we'll get into a little bit of that later, or they might use some yeasts that... Have been developed genetically Yeah, in order to create specific notes.
1: Yes. And this will take place in your winery, which is not the same, technically speaking, as your vineyard. So a winery is where wine production happens. A vineyard is where the grapes are grown. These often are at the same location, but... Uh, so in Virginia, for example, it's very common, actually, for wineries to both have their own vineyards and also to purchase from operations that are just vineyards, growing certain kinds of grapes that they do not grow on their own property as well.
0: And this is really important to understand because a winery, being the location that you're able to visit, being the place that it actually is going to house fermentation And it's going to house aging and all of that stuff and sometimes also houses a lovely place that also has a charcuterie board, perhaps. But the terroir that things are taken from, or rather the place that it's taken from, the vineyard itself, where the grapes are grown, is going to have the largest contribution to the character of the wine itself. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's kind of important to know this. Because you might have a place... That is both a vineyard and a winery, or rather a winery with its own vineyard. But if they're sourcing grapes from another place and they're doing like a single varietal release, it's from another place and that place deserves its own recognition. Yeah. And also the place itself, if you have a working knowledge of it, is going to tell you more about why the wine tastes the way it does and also give you some insight into the choices that the winemaker made Mm -hmm. when they are stewarding that character
1: yeah and we'll actually be getting into terroir in uh one of our upcoming episodes more in depth but uh, to summarize what michael said terroir is essentially you can view it as the microclimate of a specific vineyard or even a region it can be applied to a region as well that allows for a certain expression of the grapes that are grown there that is unique to that place and that place alone that cannot really be replicated elsewhere
0: So another thing that's really important to understand, and this is something that's a little bit more on the elusive side, is the difference between varietal and variety. Yes. Would you mind giving us a little insight into that? Because these are another group of terms that it just feels like they're thrown out
1: there. Yeah. And I was actually using these wrong up until quite recently when i learned the distinction between these um oh, same yeah yeah uh we didn't just google it <laughs> no um so a varietal is going to be a kind of wine that is made from one variety of grapes so a variety refers to a specific kind of grape so cabernet sauvignon merlot Grenache, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, those are all grape varieties, and if they are made into a wine where they are the only grape that comprises that wine, they are then called a varietal wine, or varietally labeled wine as one you might hear as well. So the terroir will affect the variety of grape, which will then express itself through the varietal wine if the winemaker chooses to make it so.
0: That's a really kind of like weird way of referring to things, but it, it does allow some greater distinction as far as what
1: it is exactly that you are tasting. Exactly. Yeah. And that can also actually be very useful in trying out different terroirs of, say, Cabernet Sauvignon. You can try it from Australia. You can try it from California. You could potentially try it from Bordeaux other places around the world it's grown pretty much everywhere really um but, and you can try these varietal wines to get that taste of the terroir
0: so and that's interesting because that's actually how i have my notes set up so i have distinguishments between countries but i have cabernet sauvignon as its own note mm-hmm. and then i separate them by country and terroir and producer because it's like no these are the different expressions of this yeah. grape yeah So that's interesting that there's actually language for that. That helps us actually quite a bit. There's also the issue of trellising. Yes. Trellising is a a fun little term. So trellising is a viticultural technique used to train grapevines in a particular pattern to optimize sun exposure, airflow, and fruit production. The trellis system consists of a series of wires or posts that support the vine's growth and directed shoots and foliage the most common trellising systems that i know of are the vertical shoot position the vsp the scott henry and the geneva double curtain uh there's also the the type that we discussed in our last episode uh goblet the goblet system we're going to call it goblet cuz we're filthy americans yes um <laughs> <laughs> we don't uh, care
1: about other languages here
0: uh so, there are just a couple of different ways that this is done, but this is essential for grape growing as it promotes healthy vine growth and allows for easy management of the vines. It also helps to optimize sun exposure, which is really critical for grape ripening and flavor development. By providing support and training the vines in a specific way, trellising enables grape growers to achieve high quality fruit and ultimately the exceptional wine that results from that.
1: Then, Moving into the winery itself, we start getting into some production shenanigans. The first and probably most common thing that you will hear is oak or oaked wines. This is another one where hopefully it's not too elementary of a thing to explain, but uh, oak comes from oak barrels. That's where people get the saying of this wine is oaked. Oak barrels are used for the aging and development of wines, so they allow microoxygenation to happen, which means just a very 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 small and contained amount of oxygen to reach that wine. Helps the wine to develop some additional flavors. You have your different kinds of oak, American, French, Hungarian, Slovenian. American and French are kind of your most popular ones at least at the moment. French is much more in fashion right now, overall. You also have distinctions between your different ages of oak, and we talked about this a lot in our red wine episode, so if you really want an in-depth explanation, go there. But in summary, newer oak, or straight up new oak, gives stronger flavor to a wine than old oak, and that flavor is going to be vanilla, Baking spices, cedary notes, sometimes like literal woody, cedary notes. uh, And it can have a little, yeah, some smoky, toasty notes as well. Then we have some filtration and also fining. Now, these are methods that are meant to help clarify and stabilize your wine. Wine filtration is, think of it, well, maybe don't think of it like a Brita filter because wine filters are a very different apparatus, but the same goal of literally you put your wine through a filter and there are all sorts of different kinds of wine filters at different varying levels of uh, fineness of that filter so you can have filters that literally just get out like the biggest most obvious solids in the wine just to kind of help clarify it and there's not sediment
0: in the wine why don't you go ahead and define clarify
1: so, clarification is making sure that your wine is not hazy or cloudy, essentially. This is
0: not an IPA. Correct,
1: yeah. Wine haze, unless it's natural wine, which we'll get into here in a second, is almost always considered a fault. That is pretty indicative that something has gone wrong in the wine making process. Most modern producers want a clear, you-can-see-through-it wine. Now, certain red wines are so inky in color that... You can't see through them per se, but you can still spot haze in those wines yeah. as well. They'll
0: they'll come across as milky
1: if, yeah. if they actually have a haze to them. Exactly. Uh, filtration, though, so it can go all the way, like I said, from a very rough filter to get out those molecules that you can see in the wine all the way down to the microbe level and they can get out things like bacteria and whatnot. That is called sterile filtering. Fining is also a clarifying process. This is where you add some kind of binding agent to a wine, and this will attach to certain large molecules in order to make them easy to settle or filter out of the wine solution. Often these are going to be some kind of protein-based substance, or uh, bentonite clay is a very common one, and it will bind to certain enzymes or other compounds in the wine and it literally just forms a clump that can be gotten rid of again either through settling or through filtration and settling is just letting things drop down to the bottom of a tank and you just pull off of that
0: now it is important to note that we are talking about very basic levels of this Mm -hmm. when there are wine flaws they will employ many different methods in order to try and filter or clarify the wine itself yeah but we're not going to go into that today.
1: We do have an episode on wine flaws, though, if you want yes, to listen to it.
0: Yes, we do. I now know a lot more about different products <laughs> that are meant
1: for for clearing out different types of flaws. Yeah, and some of them are less, questionable. Yeah, less desirable than others. <laughs> let's say.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, I enjoy being the generation that ended up having microplastics in their
1: blood. <laughs> I enjoyed discovering that. yum yum, yummy yum. yum. <laughs> well, speaking of, uh, well, I. Some people consider this to be a questionable substance, but sulfites, you have some experience with sulfite, an actual sulfite allergy in your family, right?
0: Yeah, so um, there is an actual thing that is known as sulfite sensitivity. Most people don't have it. In fact, most people who think that they get headaches from it have actually just overindulged. Not trying to call anybody's friends out, but when your friend... Stacy tells you that they just drank two bottles of wine, but the sulfites gave them a headache. That's not what
1: happened. You're uh, wrong, Stacy.
0: You're wrong, Stacy. Um, <laughs> so basically, sulfites are a natural part of the wine production process. When you have fermentation, one of the byproducts that ends up being spat out by the yeast, <laughs> Uh, is also going to be sulfites. And this is actually kind of a stabilizing thing, even from a natural perspective. You see, sulfites can be added in at almost every single stage, from maceration to fermentation. Every single stage they can add them in, but even if they didn't, they would occur naturally. And it stabilizes things because it stops fermentation, and sulfites also can act as a preservative. Now, this can get out of balance, and you can listen to our episode on wine flaws about how that ends up happening. It can make a wine feel tight or smell tight, which Mm -hmm. is another term that...
1: Or smell like rotten eggs.
0: Yeah, or smell like rotten eggs. Uh, Once we get into disulfides and mercaptans, we're talking about literally the most smelly substances in the world. Mm Mm-hmm. But these sulfites, they are simply sulfur compounds that can occur naturally and act as a stabilizer for the wine itself.
1: Yeah. You
0: more than likely are not actually having a reaction to that. It is something that is commonly found in a lot of different foods. And if you're not having an allergic reaction to eggs or preserved fruits, you're fine.
1: Yeah. And the specific kinds of sulfites that are the additives that we're talking about is normally going to be sulfur dioxide or SO2.
0: Exactly. Yeah. The kind of craze over sulfites is an outcropping of a few different fads, some of which have some legitimacy and some of which don't. Do
1: you want to get into that then?
0: I mean, I guess I guess we certainly can if we want to talk about some natural wine.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going for, just yeah. a little overview of that.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk about natural wine. So, uh as far as natty wine, the the other way that people refer to it. What are some of the basics that you would want to get into?
1: We actually do have an episode on this as well, so I'm just going to really give a birds-eye view of this. The main thing for most natty wines is they're going to advertise themselves as being low to no sulfites. If you see zero, zero on a natural wine bottle, that means that in theory there are zero sulfites in that wine and there is zero uh, intervention, quote unquote, in the winemaking process. There's a very heavy emphasis on sustainable agriculture, organic agriculture, and biodynamic viticulture and agriculture, or any combination of these three. And one of the big proponents is that it's a very terroir-driven movement within wine, so it's looking to really focus on like what my specific vineyard right here in this little plot of Greece or something uh, can produce, and a very non-interventionist approach to that winemaking. Now, what's really interesting about this, basically, natural
0: wine doesn't have an official Guidelines set up. There are a couple of different groups that have set up guidelines, and you would have to know kind of their specific metrics in order to figure out what it was that those specific wineries were going for. One common misconception is simply the idea of the yeast itself. Uh, You can have a type of yeast. That has not been curated in order to produce specific flavors. This is not your industrial yeast. And it is going to be completely different from field to field. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, from Natty Wine, we have high volume production. Yes. Why don't you take care of this one?
1: All right. So when I say high volume production, we are looking at our cupcakes our Barefoot, our Yellowtails, all of these wines that you will see in every grocery store, every gas station, just like um, Apothic is another one, even though I actually like some of the Apothic wines. But think just massive scale production is what people mean when they say high volume production. So we have a lot of automation going on in this field. So things like machine harvesting. Now in the vineyard, you can hand harvest your grapes, which is literally going through and cutting them off by hand. You also have machine harvesting, which is where you have these giant machines that basically shake the grapes and have the grapes and bunches fall off. But you also get a lot of stems and leaves and debris in there that can make it into that wine. Um, And
0: not always the ripest grapes.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So you have that as a high volume production method that is commonly used. You're going to have the full treatment of sulfites at pretty much every stage of winemaking, fining, and filtering, usually to sterile, because the point of a lot of high-volume production is not a quality product per se. It is a consistent product. Exactly. That's kind of the give and take, right? For a high-quality wine, you might have a lot of vintage variation. For a cupcake Cabernet Sauvignon, it is going to taste the exact same year after year, Typically, you're going to be dealing with lower quality grapes, particularly from like valley floors or really fertile areas. Lodi, California is a good example of a very uh, high volume production area of California. Don't get me wrong. There are some very high quality producers in Lodi, but Lodi does have a lot of mass grape growing for these high volume brands. We also have probably one of the key defining features of a lot of high volume production are the chemical adjustments that are made here. So if a wine needs tinkering with, these brands are not shy about doing so. You have things like artificial tannins that can be added, or they can even take natural tannins from other sources and add them into the wine to bump up the tannin content of, say, a Cabernet Sauvignon that didn't get quite ripe enough because the grapes weren't great grapes to begin with. Um, we have acidification, which is the process of adding some kind of acid to the wine during the wine making process. A very common additive for red wines in the United States is super purple. And Yay. it's one of those additives where people say that in small enough quantities, you can't taste it. And I'm sure that that is probably very true. But once you understand what super purple is... The flavor and aroma become very obvious in a lot of wines, and it is used in a lot of these wines. Super purple is meant to bump up the body, add a little bit of sweetness and complexity, and deepen the color of the wine. Primarily, it's meant as like a color corrector, but it also has some flavor and aroma characteristics as well. Uh, there's also a lot of other compounds that can be used. We won't get into all of them here. There's like over a hundred under fda regulations that can't yeah. be used here in the united states it's lower in the eu but there's still a lot that are allowed in the eu
0: in order to kind of like technically edit the flavor of a wine there are so many products that are out there oh yeah most of the things that are actually even there as far as scholarly articles on the composition of wine are paired as adverts for those products mm-hmm. Which makes studying this very difficult because you always know that it has the bent of a product about to be sold. Exactly. So it's it's really interesting, but it's also a little scary.
1: Yeah, we have that, unfortunately. Also, I mentioned that you know at the high volume level, there's a lot of automation going through. When I say high automation, I mean like a machine harvester gets something in the bins. Maybe people put those bins on a truck. That truck backs up to a warehouse it will dump directly into a fermentation vessel that's like two stories tall giant you know stainless steel vat it's and all there's almost all there's a
0: centrifuge that takes a sample of that mm-hmm. liquid and once they determine the levels of pyrazines and tannins and all that stuff They have the recommended products listed out on a computer already for them being like, hey, this is out of balance for what this needs to be.
1: Exactly. So you have that. And in general, one thing, and I'll close out on high volume production, because hopefully you have a sense for it now, um, is these are almost always lower quality wines. This is not a knock against you if you like these wines. But these are not meant to be high quality wines, that that's not what they are going for. Again, they are going for a marketable, consistent product. That is what this level of production is about.
0: And for some of us, that might be a place of comfort. (laughs) Uh, Sure.
1: It's one of those like if you're in because I've been in this scenario before a small town somewhere in like a rural part of the state that you live in, if you're in the United States, at least and your local Walmart is the only thing that has wine close to you and you want a wine, you can at least know, okay, well, I recognize this bottle. I know what's in it and I know it's going to taste the same. So
0: well, not all high volume production wines are made equal. Like, for example, Kendall Jackson, every ounce of that passes through an actual oak barrel. Mm -hmm. That's technically a high production wine. It's a little bit more expensive than others, but that's one of those ones where consistency was something that was very important, but they didn't sacrifice a lot of quality for it. So there's also just a difference in practice. But typically, if you're paying less than $10 for a wine, those are the practices that are in place.
1: Yeah. And even with Kendall Jackson, I do understand that they try to be a bit better about their quality level. They're still not like a high quality.
0: No, they're not a high quality wine. But for what they are? Oh, yeah, sure. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we do have something that's a little bit more niche, something that people don't really get into, and also something that, especially in the English language, might be a little confusing. <laughs> and that's orange wine. Yeah. Also known as skin contact wine. Why don't you get into this? Because this is, again, it's the English language. We decided to name a fruit. And a color, the same thing.
1: Yeah. And that was a mistake. (laughs) So, this is not wine made from oranges. This is shocker. (laughs) White wine, ergo, the more accurate term, skin contact white wines. These are white wines essentially that are just made in the same way as reds. That meaning that traditionally, well, actually, not traditionally, in the modern age of winemaking, I should say, white wines are almost always pressed off of the skins that free run juice the grape must is pressed off the skins completely, and it ferments without any of the grape solids in the wine. Reds are the exact opposite. Reds, typically, you will have the skins and the seeds and even stems sometimes in contact with the wine itself, fermenting altogether. Skin contact white wines or orange wines are wines that are made in that second method. That's how white wines were actually made for most of history up until recently, um, but now is kind of coming back as a fad and uh, a bit of a trend among wine drinkers. And there's some very interesting examples. We also did an episode on this uh, and tried the Wildcat from Stinson Vineyards, which is a really good white uh, skin contact, white wine.
0: It was so good. And the thing is, is you kind of know this because if you've ever had a champagne that was labeled Blanc de Noir, it was right there in the name. That's made from Pinot Noir. That is translated roughly to the White of Blacks, which basically is telling you straight up that this is a black grape that you extract a white wine from so you kind of already know that the color is coming from the skins in the case of orange wine or skin contact wine there is going to be a slightly different color but color is not the only thing that's extracted from the skins tannins are extracted from the skins other Mm -hmm. flavor compounds are extracted from the skins and it can completely
1: change the character of the wine that results yeah. as a product. These tend to be kind of funkier wines. Oh, yeah. Some of them can be too much, personally, for me. Well, especially with the trendiness, because yeah, some, some people, people are really going overboard with the contact time.
0: Well, the, the contact time and also their, their methods, it's almost as though they were experimenting with this in order to sell something rather than to explore something. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's a an experience that I definitely recommend, but it is very commonly misunderstood.
1: Yeah. We also have, in terms of our more niche styles of wine, our fortified wines or fortification more in general. I know Michael is a huge fan of one of these kinds of wines in particular, but <laughs> what this means is very simply adding a spirit to a wine and not like a spirit but a literal (laughs) liquor spirit Uh, just in case you needed to know they're not adding ghosts to wine i mean they could be Uh, if if, if it's over a burial ground or something the wine is over burial ground You
0: haven't even had anything to drink tonight. (laughs) Don't do this to me. It was
1: the Cellar Goblin. He made me say it.
0: Cellar Goblin (laughs) made me do it.
1: So, yes, adding a spirit to a wine is often used as a step to stop a fermentation early. Obviously, this is going to up your alcohol percentage. Normally, fortified wines tend to hover around the 20% mark. Some are lower, some are higher. Kind of depends on the style, but that's a good average. Um, And the reason this is done also is a lot of fortified wines are dessert wines. And adding this spirit will kill off all the yeast because yeast cannot exist in such a high alcohol environment. And it will leave a remaining percentage of sugar in the wine. And you don't have to sacrifice alcohol either and you get a sweet product from this so some of your fortified wines are going to be port von du Natrell from france and michael do you want to do you want to say madeira yeah yeah madeira madeira listen to our our madeira episode we also have a port episode i love madeira michael does love madeira i i wish i had a madeira budget
0: it's it's typically going to be around 50 dollars per bottle
1: for for your more aged ones, your yeah. rainwater Madeiras are probably going to be in the 20 oh, to 30 yeah. range. But. Yeah.
0: I mean, but it you want to get one that you can actually sip on, though. Yeah. So speaking, though, of the different purposes of wine, we also have some stuff, specifically when we get into wine tasting, that are really commonly misunderstood. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the main ones, and this is one of the most useful tools that I know of inside of wine tasting for myself is being able to distinguish between primary, secondary, and tertiary flavors and aromas. So why don't we get into that?
1: Yeah, so primary is going to be your notes and aromas that arise from the grapes themselves and the fermentation. So let's say you have Chardonnay. That's going to give you, when it's done fermenting, usually notes of apples If it's ripe enough, some like pears and apricots. If you're in a hot climate, maybe some tropical notes like pineapple or melon or something. Those are going to be primary aromas to Chardonnay. Secondary is what comes after fermentation in the winery. So oak barrel aging, that is going to impart secondary notes. So like I said earlier, baking spice, vanilla, those aromas are your secondary aromas Then we have tertiary. Tertiary is what comes with aging a wine, Happens to
0: be the main focus of the Madeira wine that I am so in love
1: with. Correct. So tertiary is once your wine has developed to a certain point, fruits are going to taste less fresh and more dried or maybe cooked in red wines, very often earth, uh, tobacco, leathery flavors in white wines you can get. Some kind of like oxidized, raisinated notes, some like caramel notes, some toffee even. Uh, mushroom is another earthy tone that can arise in white wines, particularly Chardonnay, going back to Chardonnay. So, or Pinot Noir, depending yeah. on Yeah. Um, Pinot Noir is interesting, though, because Pinot Noir can show tertiary notes at quite a young age, depending mm-hmm. on where it's from. But that is the breakdown of your primary, secondary, and tertiary notes.
0: Which is interesting because different wines might give center stage to any one of these types of notes, your Mm -hmm. primary, your secondary, or your tertiary.
1: Yeah, that's kind of in the winemaker's hands.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so it's kind of important to know, going into it, what it is that the winemaker was trying to do. Mm -hmm. But also, in some types of wines, it's going to feature all three in varying levels. Yeah. So, Being able to distinguish them is just a very useful tool for being able to go through tasting in a
1: systematic way. Exactly. Uh, We also have tannins. Yeah. Tannins are fun. Do you want to handle this one, Michael? I Uh, know you love to talk about them. Honestly, I, I
0: really do love tannins because they are so interesting from both a chemical standpoint as well as from a historical standpoint. So tannins are a type of organic molecule that's found in many plant-based foods and beverages, including tea, coffee, grapes, and nuts. And they're known for their astringent property. A lot of time this is referred to as a taste, but it's technically not a taste, it's Mm -hmm. a tactile experience, which can give a dry or puckering sensation in the mouth. Now, chemically speaking, tannins are a type of polyphenol compound they bind and precipitate proteins. And we have proteins in our saliva, which is what they're precipitating. One interesting property of tannins is their antioxidant activity, though, which basically allows protection to cells from free radicals, which is one of the things that is considered to be a kind of like wine health benefit. We won't go super into this because There is literally no conclusive research on the health benefits of wine for humans. Yeah. But theoretically, this can be used as an antioxidant and its role could be be reducing certain diseases as far as risk is concerned. And other types of tannins can be added in during the oaking if there's oaking involved.
1: One thing to note, though, is when we do have oak tannins present, they are almost never going to impact what you would consider the overall tannin level of a wine to mm-hmm. be. So some people, because they can kind of perceive the the oak tannin, even though honestly, they're not even really normally all that perceptible in a wine uh, for like oak Chardonnays, they'll say, oh, it's a low tannin wine. It's not. The tannin and leaching that happens isn't really high enough to even bump it up to the low level there.
0: It's more an augmentation of the texture itself.
1: Exactly. It's more for body.
0: Yeah. It's not going to be a thing that's like, oh, you've just changed the entire profile. Exactly. Yeah. As far as aging goes, it's also considered a preservative. Mm-hmm. So this is why red wines are going to typically age a bit better. In general than white wines white wines can have aging potential we won't get into that right now but the tannins are going to help that aging potential specifically in red wines in order to create a profile that eventually can be very smooth Mm -hmm. and
1: very enjoyable and very highly sought after yeah if you have the uh, resources and money to do this try a very young Nebbiolo-based wine and a decade-old Nebbiolo-based wine, and you can very clearly tell the difference in the tannin structure of those wines.
0: Yeah. Is there anything else that we want to cover as far as tannins?
1: No, but I do have another tasting uh, palate thing that I want to cover very quickly. I'm not
0: sure where we are in the notes right now.
1: We're at sweetness.
0: Oh. Yes. So...
1: I want to cover this one. Oh,
0: God. How many times have you seen sweet tannins in a review?
1: Not as often as you might think. I have seen a lot more of uh, people calling red wine sweet that are bone dry. That's the one I tend to run into. I've seen a lot of sweet tannins, but I also tend to search out tannin descriptions. Fair. I'm sure Vivino's full of sweet tannins.
0: <laughs> we weren't trying to throw shade, but it oh, happened I anyway.
1: Oh, I, listen, after that one night going through Vivino reviews, I will always throw shade there. Anyway, hollering. So. Your poor, <laughs> your,
0: your poor, poor housemates.
1: Yes. Well, sweetness. The reason why I want to talk about sweetness is I'm not going to define sweetness for you. You know what sweetness is. If you're a human being, it's, you know, sweetness. It's sugar, right? Sweetness when it comes to wine, and the reason why it's important to make this distinction here, is sweetness is the measure of the amount of sugar in a wine. It is not an evaluation of the fruit quality of a wine. A lot of people, when they try a wine that's very fruity, this is where you run into that problem with the reds that I just mentioned, you can have a really fruity red. So the wine that we tried last time on the podcast was actually quite fruity it had more to it than just that, but it was a very fruity wine. So that wine, a lot of people would try it and say this is sweet on some level. They might call it off dry because that perception of fruit is there. Fruit is not sugar. Those aroma compounds can reflect the fruit that does have sugar. And so your brain says, oh, this has sugar in it, but that's not the case. So I just wanted to say sweetness in wine is not necessarily the perception of how fruity something is or things you associate with sweetness. It is literally just the amount of sugar that is in that wine.
0: Yeah, that's a that's an important distinction to make because this is one of the lies that your brain is going to tell you. Exactly. Let's see, so what else do we have? We have an aroma. This is another one that's commonly found inside of the echelons of wine reviews. Yes. Because people seem to have the impression that nose or aroma and bouquet are the same definition. This is not the case. Correct. And although there's a part of me that is sickened by the distinction, there's another part of me that recognizes the utility of it. So nose or aroma versus bouquet. Do you want to handle this one? Yeah.
1: So nose and aroma. These are going to be more about identifying like specific flavor components of a wine or the overall impression of a wine. And these are going to include those primary characteristics that we just talked about. A bouquet is the result of winemaking and kind of the grand sum of the wine itself with all of that winemaking and aging factored into it. Mm-hmm. So. Let's say that we have a young Riesling and an aged Riesling. That young Riesling most likely is not going to have a bouquet of anything. The aged Riesling, let's say it's a five year aged Riesling and it's getting some like petrol, the flower component is maybe getting more dried. You could say that has like a bouquet of petrol or a bouquet of caramelized notes or something like that. That is going to focus more on that aged character of that aged Riesling versus the very young aroma components of the fresh new Riesling. Yeah. And just to close out our wine tasting section here, I just wanted to put this one in because this is something I thought of kind of as I was finishing out my notes that I have heard a lot and no one ever really defined for me. And that's hot wines or quote unquote hot wines. Um, that's basically just a wine where you can feel the alcohol burn. It can also be indicative that a wine is unbalanced, that there's too high of an alcohol content on Every it. Every time
0: I hear it, all I think, though, is, like, the visual aesthetic of Clueless, the movie. <laughs> it's wrong. This wine
1: is so hot.
0: This wine is hot. <laughs> like it's all i can think and it's bad it's not accurate even slightly this is not describing the character of the wine this is describing the alcohol percentage
1: yeah well more specifically the burn of that alcohol percentage Mm -hmm. and this is not saying that a wine is spicy we said this in the uh takedown of the episode but wines do not have capsaicin in them that that's not a thing Wines cannot be spicy in that way. They can have spice notes like pepper, nutmeg, cardamom, that kind of thing, but they are not spicy.
0: Now, it is important to note that the pain registered by the alcohol is the same type of pain that's registered from capsaicin.
1: Yeah. And that's ergo hot, right?
0: Ergo hot. Now, when we say high alcohol, what percentage do you think a wine has to be before it hits you as hot?
1: Um, normally when we get above 14% is when I really start to feel it. Um, it can vary with the wine it depends on the concentration of the other characteristics and structure of the wine. But 14% is normally where I start to really feel it.
0: I would like to say that your sensitivity is actually pretty defined Mm -hmm. as far as when you specifically are like, oh, this is a problem. I would say above 14%, but I've heard you do estimations that were accurate (laughs) (laughs) above 12%. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can learn to detect the varying levels. Um, For me, detecting the burn and the level percentage that that correlates to isn't necessarily off-putting. When it gets, again, to that 14% is where it starts to get either painful, just straight up painful, or it's starting to throw off other elements in the wine and most commonly at least in my experience
0: yeah i would say uh i would say that for me it's not off-putting but i definitely can tell above 12% once we get into maybe about 13% that's when i'm like
1: okay no <laughs> this is hot yeah so unless you had any other terms that wraps up my list no, that pretty much wraps up my list
0: of terms. If you guys have anything, literally anything, where you are like, oh, well, I kind of got it by the context, but I would love to know more about it, mm-hmm. please do message us at Laidback Lush and we will do our best to be able to address anything that you don't quite understand in the wine world. We really want you to be able to get the most out of your experiences within the world of wine, beer, and spirits. Yeah. And especially when it comes to wine, there are just so many terms that are knocked around. Gabe and I are a little blind to it now.
1: <laughs> yeah. But that, that was the struggle to get all these together for the this episode in particular. Right.
0: Because the thing is, is that we had to start from zero and we've had to try and figure out how to think from that perspective. But it's very, very difficult when you don't have that perspective. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Once once you get into the study, and that's a benefit of the study. It is. But it's also a detriment when we're trying to come to you. So if there's anything that you don't understand, there's no such thing as a stupid question. We would love to get your input. We would love to
1: address your misunderstandings. We would love to kind of give you insight. However, there is one term that you are not allowed to message us about. Because it is the topic of our episode. Oh, I'm so
0: curious. I'm so curious. Terroir. Oh, okay. No. Okay. Yeah. So terroir is its own little subject, and we'll be getting into that in our next episode. We did sum up terroir, but I know for a fact that there is going to be a much more systematic thing that's going to save some people some time and probably... Give them some better insight into how they can judge it, how they can evaluate it, and better yet, how they can predict it in the coming episode. So look forward to that in our next episode as we talk about terroir. Yes, is it even real? Is it even? A in to thing? find out. Isn't even a ter reality? Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, no, that was bad. That was bad. It, you got to give us a it,
1: better one to go out on, Michael. Come on. <sighs> Don't be so terroirable with your puns.
0: That is the... No, 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 no. Well, now that Gabe has given us our worst outro, uh, that might be the death of us. Um, But, yeah, we look forward to hearing from you and uh, to seeing you in the next episode
1: send us all your terrible terroir puns so that michael can come very prepared oh no episode okay revenge.
0: if you guys give us terroir puns i will read out every single one in the intro of our next episode
1: okay so i'm retracting that do not send no terroir send puns. me
0: all of them i dare you thank you guys so much for joining us i hope that this has helped you I hope that this enriches your experience in the wine world. We will join you next time as we discuss terroir. Thank you for joining us at Laidback Lush. (laughs) Cheers, guys.
1: Cheers. (laughs)